The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Tubagale, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. You know, as iconic as the Opera House stages are, like the sales are even more iconic. If I was a young kid and I got to see a like Indigenous man on top of it telling our, you know, version of, of our lived experiences, like that would just be so meaningful. Hey, I'm Courtney Avenhauser and this is Up Next, a podcast full of sit-down chats with the most exciting artists and performers coming through the doors of the Sydney Opera House. Since the Opera House has been going strong for 50 years, in every episode of this podcast, we showcase someone who we think is destined for icon status in the next 50 years. So join me backstage at one of the most iconic venues in the world. In the last few years, Ziggy Ramor has basically made a second home out of the Opera House. In 2020, at the height of the pandemic, he premiered his first album, Black Thoughts. It was a live stream in the Joan Sutherland Theatre with no audience. The performance was full-bodied rapping and heartfelt truth-telling. It packed a punch about the dark side of Australian history. NME called it the most important Australian album of the year. Ziggy came back in 2021 to film the video clip for his version of Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly's famous track, From Little Things, Big Things Grow. He climbed on top of the Opera House sails at sunrise to perform the song out in the open, high above the harbour. In this episode of Up Next, we chat about his new album, Sugarcoated Lies, and his recent turn as an actor and composer in the Australian drama Black Snow. What I love about Ziggy is his thoughtful, intelligent approach to sharing his story and the stories of First Nations Australians. He has a powerful ability to have hard but necessary conversations, which he continually brings to his artistry in new and creative ways. Hey, Ziggy, welcome back to the Opera House. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you're no stranger to this place. You've done a few things here. In 2020, you launched your debut album, Black Thoughts, here. You performed on the forecourt. You've been on the sales. You've been everywhere, pretty much. What keeps bringing you back? It's a pretty kind of iconic stage, right? Like it's, I think it's a, a dream to be able to kind of present your art on you know, one of the most prestigious stages in in the country. So, I mean, as long as the Opera House will have me, I'll, I'll keep on uh, trying to do things for sure. When you were filming the video clip for Little Things, you were on top of the Opera House. You also directed the clip. What was your creative thinking when you came up with that concept? It was pretty audacious, the whole thing was really serendipitous. Um, I was supposed to perform uh, a like a version and for a myriad of reasons that didn't end up happening, but I'd started kind of learning from little things, big things grow. As that process happened, these words kind of just started falling out and uh, lo and behold, I had the audacity to go ahead and give myself the permission to rewrite the song. And so 
I had kind of like fallen in love with it and really wanted to be able to share it with people. And I spoke to my manager, Courtney, and I was like, do you reckon there's any chance that like this might happen? And she was like, I actually know Bill, Paul's manager. Maybe I could reach out. And we were sitting in the car and literally that car ride, Bill emailed me and he said, hey, Paul's a big fan. Do you want to perform at the New Year's Eve concert he does? We'd love to have you. And I was like, what the oh my hell? God. <laughs> yeah, so I emailed uh, Bill back straight away and I was like, yes, of I'd course. love to. Um, and also, while I have your attention, <laughs> um, I have this little thing. So, yeah, like got connected with Paul and um, he was just so humble and gracious and, and giving and um, gave me the permission to to go ahead and do it. And we worked really hard on, on the song. Like I think we started in like November and, and went through to like January. Once I actually had the song finished and I, I listened to it, I just started getting this vision of me standing on top of the opera house. I don't know why or how I thought it would be achievable. I think the thing was for me is that I knew how iconic From Little Things, Big Things, Grow was. And I also know how iconic the Sydney Opera House is. And I was kind of putting this side of, of history out there that, you know, hasn't been heard and, and maybe hasn't been put in those kinds of spaces before. So I, I made some pretty outlandish phone calls and I was just like, here's this song that I have and here's this idea. Is there any chance? And um it kind of got taken up the line and it came back with a yes, which was um, didn't really think would be possible. And then and then it was just a, a process of um, really storyboarding and having a clear idea of what we were trying to get because, you know, you, you don't get... You don't get 10 days on top of the sales. You get like <laughs> one morning and, you know, you've got to make it happen. Absolutely. And I heard that you had to pass a physical test before you were even allowed to climb on top of the sales. What did that involve? Because I'm picturing, you know, high school beep test. What was involved in this? So I had to go to this physio. The physio, she was so lovely. And she's like started by saying like, this is going to seem so bizarre, but you're just going to have to trust me. <laughs> and there was all of these like positions uh, she had to like simulate to show that I would be able to make the climb. Because when you climb up the sails, like there are all of these like little holes you have to climb through and twist and turn and like it's just a bit of a maze. So out of context when you're not there and someone's <laughs> like trying to explain it to you in a room, it was so bizarre. But um, <laughs> it was all just like a little bit of a whirlwind. And then, yeah, luckily enough, I, I passed and, and then got to do the climb at like 4.30 in the morning and it was just, it was so surreal. I bet. Wow. I had to like wear this harness underneath the shirt. And oh. so like I cut like this thing out the back where like the harness could come out of. So it didn't look all bulky and stuff. I was like wearing these super tight, intense, like skinny compression sport stuff, then like duct taped down really hard. So it was like... Strapped in. Yeah, it was like so uncomfortable and so cold because it was like 5, 6 a.m. and it was like cold and I could hardly breathe, but it was uh, all, all in the name of art. 
Yeah, Rihanna saw you do that and then was like, I want to be up there Hold on a harness. my beer. <laughs> I see you, Rihanna. Yeah. <laughs> what an inspired idea. Yeah. <laughs> Did the test come in handy? Yeah, massively. Like, that's what was so funny. Is it's like, as we were climbing, it was like, oh, that was this that's position. That's that shape. That's this shape. That's that shape. Yeah, I mean, like, you get up to the top and then it opens up and it's just like, yeah, it's breathtaking. Especially at that time of day. Yeah, and I like, I mean, I don't know if this is allowed to be aired or not, but everyone who climbs up, like, signs it. Oh, And yeah. there's, like, these signatures from, like... Dish, who's been up there? So far, like, from, like, people who have worked there, like, yeah, from the moment truly. it opened to... Yeah, I, like, signed right next to Jackie Chan and then drew an original flag. And I didn't see any before then, so I was like, that's pretty pretty cool. You've left your mark. Yeah, yeah, totally. Nice. I want to go back to the premiere of Black Thoughts. You had a smoking ceremony on the stage for that. What did that mean to you? It was pretty surreal, honestly. At the time, Sophie Young and Alistair Hill, they were kind of my like main people uh, I was running point with while developing that show. They were like pretty great. On one of our first calls, Alistair Hill asked me like, what's your like blue skies dream vision of how this show could go? And I asked him like, do you mean that honestly? Like, can I really go for it? And like, he wanted to hear it. And that was one of the kind of first things that was like a really important thing because it was like in the middle of this pandemic and there was so much heaviness and weight and angst and displacement and yeah, it was just a very charged time. So the first time being able to step on the Opera House stage and present the debut of Black Thoughts, it just felt vital to be able to cleanse the space and start on the right foot by paying homage and acknowledgement. We did like a rehearsal to camera and it was like a bit scattered, honestly. And then like to just pause and literally smell the burning of fire and the crackling of the leaves like under the flame and to receive a welcome to country, you just like felt the whole room go still. And that was so big because then we all jumped on stage and like performed and it just couldn't have gone better. Yeah, go and check it out if you haven't seen it. You've just released your second album, Sugar Coated Lies. You actually wrote the album about four years ago, right? Yes. A lot's happened in the last <laughs> four years. Pandemic, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, of course. Your fame has grown as well, and I assume you as a person too. What's it like releasing it now, four years later, after all that has happened? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be an accidental trend where I write albums and sit on them. I mean, Black Thoughts went through a similar thing. Yeah. Um, prior to putting Black Thoughts out, I thought I was going to put out Sugar Coated Lies in kind of 2020. So you had them both there. Yes, I did. But I'd chronologically written Black Thoughts mm -hmm. and then read it Sugar Coated Lies. And so I think what I really learned about Black Thoughts was, you know, when you put the art forward and you kind of are open to when the art makes sense. Like you just kind of trust your gut and go for it. Mm -hmm. And with 2020 and everything that it was, there was just a really clear 
moment for me where I just got clarity and I was like, okay, Black Thoughts needs to be out in the world now. This um, is the more urgent one. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And then that kind of happened with Sugar Coated Lies. Kind of like eight months of last year for me was working on a project called Black Snow, which I was acting in and co-composed the score. And that kind of show looks at the Australian South Sea Islander experience because um, I'm also Australian South Sea Islander. My great-great-grandfather, Quailu, was like enslaved and brought over to work away on the sugarcane fields. It was like 62,000 South Sea Islanders who were brought across. And, you know, it's this part of our history that we don't ever really talk about or reflect. And Sugar Coated Lies is an album, you know, it's exploring that lineage also in a nuanced way. Like the whole process of sugar-coated lies was about erasure of history in the same way that has happened to Australian South Sea Island history. So it was about like sugar-coating these songs so that they feel polished and melodic and they can be played in on radio and all of that. But deep below it is like this insidious thing that's bubbling. And I say all of that to say when I was working on, on Black Snow, it's this genre murder mystery piece with Travis Fimmel, who's the super good looking man from Vikings. And you come into it and you're watching it. And then underneath the surface, you start to learn about this community of Australian South Sea Islanders. And Sugarcoated Lies obviously was written years before that, but it felt so paralleled and connected in that way. Was of, it already called Sugar Coated Lies? Yeah, 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 wow. Which was like such a spin out. <laughs> That's right? wild because you're there and it's the sugar cane industry in literally, North Queensland. Wow. Literally. That is just so like serendipitous or something of like, I don't know, that timing and. That's an amazing story. Yeah, and I think that's the whole thing of just trying to remain open. You can't control any of that. Sugarcoated Lies covers a lot of heavy content around mental health and intergenerational trauma of First Nations people. And you talk about the process of putting your feelings and experiences into an album as being therapeutic. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, in, in Black Thoughts, it was so much about... I mean, it's pretty morbid, but there's a line in the last song called Kids. And I say, this obituary that I feel for the truth could now become very handy. And I didn't know how long I would be around because like how, how much the intergenerational trauma was impacting me, my mental health was, you know, so frail that it just didn't feel like I would be here. And with Black Thoughts, it was like, well, if I'm not going to be around, I'd like to at least leave my understanding um, of like these systems and institutions and, you know, a lens that isn't often heard. So Black Thoughts was so much about the external, you know, these big frameworks and mechanisms and systems of oppression. It was really explicit and it was like really clear, but it was about external. With Sugarcoated Lies, it was about you know, Ziggy Ramo as the character existing in that context. So Sugarcoated Lies is about going inside and internal. I kind of showed you what the context is that I live and, and now I'm going to show you how it makes me feel. You've described wanting your music to be the antidote to apathy and your first album, Black Thoughts. I feel like it did it in a way that's very sonically big, whereas with Sugarcoated Lies, it's it's more subtle and more nuanced. But you know, they're both taking these different approaches, 
I wanted to know what changed in you between those two albums and the writing process of them. I mean, I changed, like, right, I grew, I got older, I experienced different things, but the the purpose is the same in that, like, you know, I, I care for country. That's what has happened in my lineage for 50,000 years. So I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's to care for country. It's to leave this space better than I found it. And on an individual level, like just as a person who's walking around, I don't want to like make the same thing, right? It's like eating the same thing for dinner every day. Like eventually you grow tired of that. And so Black Thoughts was done to me. That was that work. So when I went to start writing the next body of work, it was about like where could I take that same purpose but, you know, explore it in a different way. I think I guess the growth side of things is that it was about going into songwriting. Black Thoughts was so much to me about like, I am a lyricist and I'm really good at rapping, like from just a craft perspective. Whereas when I moved into Sugar Coated Lies, like I started producing and I, you know, as much as I grew up listening to Nas and Common, like I also was a kid in the late 90s singing Britney Spears. So like I love pop (laughs) and I love melody and and melody is this universal language that moves people. Mm -hmm. So I think I wanted to start taking and pulling from different spaces and figure out how that works for me. Like it wasn't about like tone policing myself to make it like more subtle and more palatable. Yeah. It was like, I also love this monkey bars over at the playground as well. Like mm-hmm. how, how would I do it? Let's talk a bit more about Black Snow, which you've touched on already. Cause yeah, your career, it's moved into this new direction you're acting in this show. You also did the composition. How did that all come about? Funnily enough, uh, the Opera House had a little bit of a part to play in it. Uh, so Rosemary Blight, who is an executive producer on Black Snow, she had seen the Little Things music video. And when Rosemary saw that, she started to kind of join the dots of, oh, maybe this person is is interested in other mediums and, and other spaces. And so from there, Rose ended up going and watching the uh, 2020 Black Thoughts performance as well. And, you know, I think I try and, like I, I take performing very seriously and it is a performance in, in every, you know, aspect of the word. So when Rose saw those two pieces of work, she got pretty fixated on the idea of me being uh, incorporated into to Black Snow. So they reached out in like May and we started shooting in June. So it was like, <laughs> it was like a two week turnaround. That must have been a bit of a whirlwind. Massively, massively. But I think it was kind of also so good because it like kind of couldn't overthink. It was just about instinct and, and storytelling and in the deep end and trying not to drown. So yeah, came on kind of solely on the acting thing with the intention to be able to talk about composition. Mm-hmm. And as I was on set, it just started to become really obvious to me how I thought the score should sound mm-hmm. because this story, it doesn't try and tell every story of Australian South Islanders. Like it's it's not about the entire diaspora, like it's it zoomed in on a single girl of a single family and that family is from Tanner Island and Tanner Island's in, in Vanuatu and 
you don't actually see Tanner Island in the show because it's about like the Australian South Islander community. That community is obviously in Australia, but that lineage is is derived from Tanner Island. So there was such a clear thing in my mind that we could parallel the story of the Baker family through the music that like if we went to Tanner Island and were able to record, uh, we would then take those sounds and then bring them to Australia and then we would, you know, recontextualize them and change them and manipulate them and process them so that, you know, at times that almost become not recognizable and, and different. And as the score goes over the six episodes, like the distortion and the those kind of bass samples like become more and more, yeah, distorted and, and hidden. Yeah, so I kind of felt so strong about that, but I'd obviously never composed uh, a score before. So Rosemary ended up bringing in a beautiful composer and human, Jed Palmer, who has done this a lot. This is what he does. And Jed was so open to collaboration. So I I finished my last day on set in like August at like 10 o'clock at night. And then the next morning we flew to Vanuatu and did a week of recording with family and were welcomed into uh, the Bethel community village with Chief Jeffrey. And um, he took us all around Tanner Island and we were given these beautiful songs and, and song lines and, and furthermore given the permission to be able to use them, incorporate them and, and change them for the context of, of a score. And so after about a yeah week of recording, we went to work on doing like three hours of original music in, in a couple of months. So it was pretty, pretty intense. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it sounds like such an amazing experience to actually get to go and be there with the community and everything that you've just described. In terms of like the way you approach your artistic practices as a musician for your solo work, how how did it feel to be working in this new way? Oh, I loved it. Like I had more fun in, in the post-production. I think like filming on set, like actors kind of get all of the attention because that's who people see. But what you film on set, it's kind of like getting groceries at a store. And then when you go into post-production, it's about actually cooking the meal. And it's like making those creative decisions about how a show will be presented. And so when I was sitting there working on the score, it was just so freeing and, and so liberating in a lot of ways. So sitting in this room, making music invisibly, I hadn't had that kind of experience because all the music that I've done up up until this point, it's been attached to my face. The idea to like step back on stage, like while I was still in that process felt really jarring. And then I ended up performing at first and forever. And it was like the best performance ever. So it was like, <laughs> oh no, that's yeah, that's right. Like I, I love the attention. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. Yeah. <laughs> and what was it like bringing that South Sea Islander perspective to this project? And, you know, you mentioned it's not it's not trying to tell everyone's story. It's like zoomed in. But what was it like to bring that perspective? I almost felt like that was my biggest responsibility, mm. honestly. Like, yes, I was acting in it. Yes, I was writing music. And all of that allowed me to be in the room. So I was quite lucky. I like literally sat in on like all the final mix reviews. So the way that TV is made is you go and film it, then you edit it and then you do the scoring to the edit. And then once 
that's done, you're also doing sound design and a bunch of stuff. And then the producers and the creator creator will like sit in the room and make final decisions about what's working, how loud things should be, if things should stay or go. And, and I was able to sit in on them. And that was, I think, probably my most important work on the show because it was about really trying to honour and ground this show in authenticity so that, you know, and this was something I would often say in the room is, you know, we're, we're telling this story on this stage for the first time. So we get to set the precedent of what it is to tell stories about our community. You know, I dream that Black Snow opens the door for many other stories to come, but at least there's like a benchmark of we had community consultation. We went to Tanner Island, like we included family, like and and had Australian South Islander people sitting in the room all the way from start to go. So I think that was so important to me about the kind of foundation that we were laying down. And where do you think you would go next with your music? Um, I know where I'm going next. Oh, yeah. dish, I, scoop, hello. Yeah, I, so I've, you know, weird, I mean, it's the next time we sit down and talk about the next album, Human, it's going to be a similar thing where I wrote it in 2021. I was actually going to say, are you sitting on three albums right now, <laughs> yeah. Ziggy? <laughs> yeah, so the the next project is called Human and it's like both a book and an album. So each song is a chapter in a book because, you know, when I wrote Black Thoughts, it's like 8,000 words and that's so lyrically dense, right? Mm. But a book is like 80,000. So like you have so much more space and time for history and context. And by doing that, it means like the songs can be more, I guess, like reflective and nuanced in in ways. And Little Things is is on that album. So writing Little Things kind of was this conduit to picking up the guitar and ended up writing like nine kind of singer songwritery folky songs, um, which obviously is a massive departure from, you know, what's happened prior. But I think it was about reinventing and shedding, I think, and and trying to grow in a different artistic way. Yeah, that's so exciting to hear, like, you know, you're moving into different genres and sounds. How is the album and the book, like, how do they speak to each other? Or how do they coexist? Do they, you know, you said there's a chapter for each song, but can you explain how they kind of just are in dialogue together? Massively. So, mm. like, the way uh, each chapter starts is with the written lyrics of the songs because they're like these poems that have kind of taken shape and then that kind of sets the thesis of each chapter. And then, you know, you got 10,000 words to play with of going into history, context um, and lived experience. So the way that I kind of explain each chapter is that it's almost like a hot dog, which is a weird analogy. (laughs) But, you know... Tell me more. (laughs) The bread is like the dry history context, the foundation that, you know, sets the table and keeps it all together. And then the like meat is the lived experience and how that history and context interacts with the lived experience. And then your onions and sauces and condiments are my ideas about how those are in dialogue with each other. So you get the thesis from the poem, you get the hot dog 
from the chapter and then you listen to the song because by reading the words, then reading the chapter and then hearing it, like it hits you in such a different way because all of these little breadcrumbs that are kind of buried in the songs, like you actually know now because you've been able to sit and read it in, in a different way. Can't wait to read and listen <laughs> yeah. to the, both of Either those can things. I. Either <laughs> can I. When are you, is there like a release date or is that still in the works? I mean, like I could tell you something, but it's like, who knows with me? It's okay, just like when the, when the breeze hits me at the right time. No, <laughs> it's no, true, like it, isn't it? It's, um, it's all moving in, in the right direction. Like it's always the final like five, 10% that takes the two years. Totally. Right? Like, yeah. Refining. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ziggy, you're writing a book, you're acting in things, you're composing scores, you're writing music, you're the multi-hyphenate. Slashy. Slashy, (laughs) ultimate. What kind of artist do you most identify as? I, I think it's not a medium. It's, I guess, the concept coming from an oral culture. You know, we've had song men and women and and storytellers who are gatekeepers of knowledge and of wisdom for caring for country. And so I think because I've grown up dispossessed of those songlines because of the removal and denial of access to, to country, the innate ability hasn't gone anywhere. Like, and the desire to find it is now like more strong than ever. And so I think for me, it's storyteller. I think that's why I always am drawn to whether it's books or scores or acting or composing. It's because all of those things are about communicating a story. And that is what like inspires and excites me. I think for me, it's really come down to a place of like, I want to see change for my community. And I I know I have stories and a perspective that can help create that change. I know like a lot of Australians don't understand hip hop and rap as a craft and as an art form, but it's like we understand like four mediocre guitar chords going around (laughs) and around, right? Like, so I'm kind of like, well, I feel confident in my ability to shift and adapt and learn because I can tell stories. It's so much about finding like the right space for the right story and that's like the exciting pursuit for me Mm, finding that way for people to listen this podcast is all about spotlighting artists who we think are up next i'm keen to hear from you who are some artists that you've got your eye on or who you think are kind of changing the game right now or will be changing the game soon yeah, totally. I mean, an artist that I worked with on True Coded Lies, Alice Skye, um, I've forever been the biggest fan. I think like just such a beautiful, just transcendent voice. Like Alice always moves me to like another place and is also just such a, a beautiful person. And I mean, like Alice is already doing amazing stuff, but I'm always just like any stage that Alice can can get onto, I'm always going to be there cheering for it. Another young artist out of Perth, WA, is Marley Jose. I met Marley when I was still living in Perth. I would have been 19 or 20 and, and Marley was, I think, like 14 in high school. And I had a family friend whose 
friend of a friend was your school teacher. And um, at the time I'd like just started kind of making a little bit of noise doing music. And Marley was like playing state soccer and um, was also like at an acting school and but was like loved music and, and really loved it. And so I went and caught up with him one day after school and he like played me these demos and I was like, oh my God. Because when I was at that age, I was kind of similar, but I didn't know anyone or have any kind of access into knowing what to do or how to go about it. And so when I met Marley, I was like, oh, it's kind of like looking back in time in a way. And Marley's just been growing and growing and growing. And last month while I was in Perth, I, I got to hang out with Marley a lot. And yeah, it was so interesting just to, yeah, I mean, it feels like so much about Up Next. And he actually just put out a song with Kobe D, who's an amazing MC. And it's only kind of going to be a matter of time for all of these awesome things that's going to be ahead for Marley. Yeah, Marley's probably sitting on a couple of albums as well. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, he's so much like that as well. Like he's got all the ideas. And one other artist is um, Von, who's um, on Sugarcoated Lies. Um, it's kind of like the first stuff that Von's ever put out. Um, I, I met Von over, over the years and have always just been like such a believer in, in Von's voice and... Um, yeah, I, I know music is is very soon. We, we've done some writing, and um, yeah, I'm I'm very excited for people to to kind of get to get to know Von. Hell yeah, definitely a couple of artists to keep an eye on. Yeah, I over delivered. If anything, no, I love it. The more, the merrier. <laughs> Ziggy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was rapper, songwriter, actor, musician, author, truth-teller, all-round superstar slashy Ziggy Ramor. You can watch Black Thoughts and Little Things on the Sydney Opera House streaming platform at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. I'm Courtney Ammenhauser and this has been Up Next, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House. From Audiocraft, the show is produced by Bernadette Fungnam Nguyen, mixed by Glenn Morrow, Executive producer is Selena Shannon. From Sydney Opera House, head of digital programming is Stuart Buchanan and digital programming coordinator is Georgia D'Souza. The Up Next theme music is by Milan Ring. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 